Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Today's guest is author Rebecca Hardy, residing in West Sussex, England. She's been writing since an early age. She's a regular contributor to photographic publications and blogs, as well as short works of fiction, and shares love for books on her Instagram profile at Rebecca underscore reads books. She now lives in West Sussex with her two lively boys and two equally lively cats and her husband. The House of Lost Wives is her debut adult novel, which we're going to be discussing today. And it's a bit of a change of the science fiction fantasy bent that I've been taking. And this is definitely has the fantasy in it, the fantastical, but it's also got the um, thriller and more of a, of a romance side to it, which we'll discuss a little bit later. Welcome, Becky. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so on, um, I guess we've originally met, or I met you via uh, Julie Wills, who works in our office here. Um, you'd written a blog post on photography for Battlefield Earth. So how did, that, how did that original engagement begin? Well, uh, to give you a little bit of background, I've been working at a dedicated Nikon store, or Nikon as you call it over there, uh, in London for nearly 15 years now. And my boss, the director, is Gray Levitt, who I think you might actually know. Sure, I know him, yes. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Julie had gotten in touch with him originally and said, do you have anyone that would be interested in writing an article for us based off Battlefield Earth? And Gray knew that I read Battlefield Earth actually more than more than once. I think I've re <laughs> read it three, maybe four times. Um, and because I have already been writing articles for the Nikon Owner magazine and several other photographic publications. Mm -hmm. He said, well, why don't you take a spin at this? So that's kind of how that came about. And it was a lot of fun because, you know, it was a little bit out of my usual remit, but yeah. <laughs> I think I did yeah. okay. It was did an enjoyable great. article. You Thank did you. great. You know, obviously your, your love and familiarity with, with lenses and cameras uh, came in very well, even though uh, it got into the science fictional aspect of the button cameras and yes. other types of things that were used in there. But yeah. we're not that far away from some of those devices that were talked about in Battlefield Earth. No, it's amazing, actually. Technology gets more and more clever as every year goes on. We actually do a weekly podcast on all the latest Nikon and photographic news. And sometimes some of the stuff goes a little bit over my head at times when we're talking about really scientific precision equipment that, you know, Nikon have created lenses for or technology for. But cameras have always fascinated me. And uh, it definitely has, there's definitely a root of it in Battlefield Earth and in a lot of L. Ron Hubbard's fictional works. Right. So on writing, so you've done nonfiction writing obviously a lot of that type of stuff. Yeah. How did it bridge over to writing a novel? What, what was like your realizing what we're talking to uh, is aspiring writers and artists. So your story will be able to appeal to a certain percentage of them who are similar situations to yourself. So I'm, I'm interested at, at the outset here talking about how you went from doing your work with, with, uh, Nikon, as you pronounce it over here in America, we call it Nikon. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then phase over into, into writing, you know, fantastical type work. So how did that transition work for you? Well, I think like a lot of your listeners, I had been writing since as long as I can remember. I remember doing creative writing as homework when I was probably about six or seven years old. Um, my parents worked full-time, so I spent a lot of time in one of their unoccupied offices, just, mm -hmm. you know, either writing on scraps of paper or writing, if I managed to pinch my mum's computer, sometimes on that very, very old computer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm. um, and I always, I always enjoyed the process of writing, even if it wasn't necessarily something that anyone was going to read. I'm sure there's 
lots of really terrible stories that I've written over the years. I found a few of my exercise books from school where I'd written, you know, horror stories in the back because I was on a whole horror kick for a while when I was about 12, 13. Um, and then I've found other little scraps of writing when I was really obsessed and still am as an adult, but with Lord of the Rings, I've read that book at least 10 or 11 times. Wow. And uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm yes. a big nerd. <laughs> and uh, so I've got lots of fantasy stories sort of tucked away in, in drawers and stuff. And writing photography articles is very easy for me. It's something that weirdly comes very naturally. I enjoy writing about technical things and also trying to make them interesting to people who maybe don't have such a, a techno technology-based background. So then writing a novel, I actually wrote, I wrote a few that never saw the light of day. Okay. As I think. Not, a lot in, of not in common, not in common. <laughs> <laughs> and then I decided to write some young adult and middle, middle grade kind of aged works. And those were all fantasy. One uh, series that I wrote is called Divided by Magic. And I published that under my married name, which is Rebecca Danese. And it's a young adult urban fantasy, so it does have that sort of fantastical, magical element in it. And sure. I'm really proud of that series as a series, but I knew from pretty much the moment that I wrote it that it wasn't something I was going to be able to query or put through the whole publishing ringer. I, I thought if an editor got hold of this, they'd probably want to change everything about it. And <laughs> and I want control over this little, you know, first kind of newborn baby book of mine. So, um, so that is still lurking around on Amazon and is still available. And I do have people sometimes write to me and say, Oh, I've just discovered, I've just discovered Divided by Magic. And I really love that series. And it's, it's for that particular young adult audience right. and kind of came off the back of, uh, that time period, which was the Hunger Games and Divergent and, you know, Maze Runner and stuff. So it's got that kind of constant action, fast paced right. uh, young adult romance going on in there, as well as the magic side of things. And then in 2019, I think it was, I had the idea for a for an adult historical fiction novel. I'd always wanted to write historical fiction, never felt like I was totally up to it. I thought the book, I wasn't yet ready to write that story when I originally had the idea for it. And by mm -hmm. 2019, I'd written enough other things that I thought, I think I'm ready to tackle this now. So I started and finished it right when we were sort of beginning to go into lockdown and decided to query it because I really felt like it was a book that was worthy of querying and sending around and doing the rounds of, right. of finding an agent. And I was very, very fortunate actually to find the agent that I did find. Her name's Vanessa Holt. She only takes on about one new author a year. She's pretty selective. And I didn't even say to her, here's the first three chapters of my book, read it and tell me what you think. I actually approached her very, very cautiously because I'd seen from my little bit of research, I researched every single agent that I queried mm -hmm. personally. Smart. Yes. I, that's my probably my biggest tip is research the agents and make sure that what you're supplying them is something that they actually are interested in and that they want. If if you're writing science fiction and you pick a, an agent out of the Writers and Illustrators annual handbook and they actually publish historical fiction or you know new new adult romance or something it might not get very far <laughs> <So>. <laughs> guaranteed it won't get very far yeah so so my advice is definitely know your audience when you're querying um but I found Vanessa and I thought well actually the stuff that she's published before although it's not exactly the same as what I've written I could see that she had published things that were in a similar enough vein that she might find this interesting so I just said to her, this is the title of my book. I was just wondering if you'd be interested in in seeing any of it. And, you know, no pressure on my part. I just, I thought I'd ask the question sort of thing. And her books weren't open at the time either. So it was, it was very much a stab in the dark. 
And she came back to me and said, I love the title, actually. Yes, send me the first few chapters. So I did. And then she said, love the first few chapters. Send me the rest of the book. So I did. And uh, and that was how I managed to get my agent, which I'm very, very pleased with. Uh, I can't honestly have asked for someone with better experience. And, and in her own way, she's so careful and conscientious about how she sells your book and how she you know, pitches things to the editors that she's got connections with. Right. So I was very lucky. Absolutely. And now, so how long you wrote the book? It took you how long to write it? Probably the first draft, first and second and third drafts when it was ready to go uh, was about six months. Okay. So you, once you started, it was like pretty much start and you finished it without much time lag in between stopping yes I really tried not to I I tend to do that with any project that I'm working on I might have you know 50 different ideas on the go but once I've started writing a book I really try and just get to the end of it at least the first draft of it before I start procrastinating yeah I was just I just finishing um I did an interview on Monday with uh Jonathan Mayberry who's Mm. uh, a very prolific author science fiction fantasy horror and that's what he said. He just, he never does the edit until he's done reading the book, you yeah. know, because you don't know how it's going to go. And then you can get yourself into a corner if you start editing before you're done with the story itself, you know. So when you wrote it, did you, had you plotted it out or are you kind of like, I started off the premise and just went to see how it went? Uh, certain parts of it, for sure, I planned and certain scenes were completely I, I was, I'm a pantser, half and half. Really. Right. So, um, so I knew the ending before I began, and I Good. knew actually one particular scene, which um, you, I think you've read it now, haven't yeah. you? Or, or yes. the, yeah. So, yeah. Um, the there's a side character in the book who is a young stable boy, and he's possibly one of the most lovable characters of. Indeed, he of, is the whole side cast. And actually his character was the one that I conceptualized first. And the whole scene of Lizzie trying to learn to ride a horse when she's absolutely terrified of horses, that scene was the most clear in my mind before I started writing. And then I kind of began to ask myself the question of, well, why is she here? And why didn't she learn to ride horses? Well, if she's a country girl, she would know how to ride horses. And And then eventually I managed to sort of pull it back until I got to the the story I wanted to tell. Good. And it was, it's interesting. The fantastical aspect of it, you know, her being able to uh, speak to, to ghosts, yeah. um, to uh, the various, some of the past wives and, and yeah. um, it was, I mean, the title itself, the house of lost wives is, I mean, that in itself is a definite grabber. You're like, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, seeing how she got pulled into it, like what's happening here. I knew she was the protagonist. So I knew she wasn't going to be outed at the end. Yes. Um, so I had that as, as a, as a comfort anchor that would <laughs> take me through it because there's some stuff like, Oh no. I mean, yeah, there's some good evil in there. And um, I mean, really bad evil in there that, yeah. that countered, you know, like you said, your stable boy, who yeah. was just a really good guy and a lot of good people there. So at the end, when it just, it looked like it was just taking a nosedive to oblivion there. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> a coincidence I didn't see coming up when you look at the bigger picture, all of a sudden, oh my word, you know, because yeah. all the circumstantial evidence pointed one direction. But then when you got the bigger picture, it was like 180 degree reverse. So that was that was pretty clever, and I'm not going to do anything else that's going to get away because it's it's a real fun story. And again, that's something that's outside of my normal reading because I'm in the middle of reading now two more books for an interview I got coming at the end of this month with um, Hugh Howie on mm. uh, on two books he just sent to me to that I'm reading to get ready for that, and it's it's anything but the House of Lost Wives, you know. So it's great because when I do that, I'm reading so much these days because I won't interview an author unless I've read a book that they've, yeah. that they've written. It's just, I don't, it just makes it so much easier to dig into the the mindset and what they're trying to do and what led up to that, which now begs the next question. So you said you used to like 
as a as a young pup, you know, your whore when you're 12. Um, so you got the fantastical here. So in by day she's a a Nikon photographer and author and writer of nonfiction, and by night she's <laughs> the ghost the ghost hunter. So That's right. <laughs> how, how did this? How how did you come to land in this genre as um, or subgenre as a, as a where your your bailiwick? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question actually. I think. I I always had a draw to ghosty kind of stories. Um, you might see my dedication was to my grandmother, um, who passed away very very suddenly last this time yet last year in fact. And when growing up, she would take me absolutely everywhere with her. We would go to any if it said haunted on the <laughs> on the signpost outside, she would take me there. If there was rumors that a particular place had the ghost of some past earl or something, we'd be we'd be visiting. And uh. I think that kind of almost morbid curiosity, but also the spirituality. She was very, very spiritual as a as uh-huh. a person. And that kind of interest in what happens after death and, you know, do you really lose contact with the people that you love? She'd lost her husband many, many years before and had kind of never let go of the idea that she could still communicate with him in some way. And I always found that just incredibly interesting and fascinating as a kid. And because I think I grew up without it being shunned or, you know, my own notions of, oh, I can see a ghost in the on the stairs or whatever. I had this very much kind of feeling that I was able to perceive or at least be aware that there were things that went bump in the night that actually right. existed. <laughs> so right. she never once said, no, that's wrong or you're making it up or or anything like that. And she didn't kind of go overboard and say, oh, yes, well, you know, obviously you can see ghosts or whatever. But at the same time, she she didn't kind of completely invalidate that. So it was something that had to be in this story almost. And she she was also a massive crime thriller reader. I mean, every book that had some kind of, you know, murder in it, <laughs> that was what she would read. And originally I wrote it thinking this is a story that she'd really love to read. And of course, unfortunately, it, it she never managed to get the chance to, but I still think that that she would have enjoyed it and been very, very proud of it as a as a story. It had all the elements in it that she would have liked. That's great. Now, are any of the people that are in this story shades of people in your real life? I can't give away all my secrets. <laughs> um, I've definitely had friends. I grew up with some really fantastic friends who, um, one, my my best friend in the whole wide world, he was one of four brothers, five siblings in total, and very, very much felt like Geordie, the stable boy, would have would have been him to a T. Um, he doesn't know that. So, <laughs> so uh, I, if he listens to this, then he's going to think, oh my God, I'm in the book. But uh, but hopefully, not. <laughs> hopefully he won't yeah. be too offended by it. And I mean, I've always had, I've been very fortunate to be surrounded with a lot of really lovely people, not just family, but sort of long-term family friends. So mm-hmm. there's, um, there's kind of guides and counselors for Lizzie who kind of keep her on the straight and narrow and let her know that she's got somewhere safe to go when all's going horribly wrong. And they're maybe not directly characters that I've written straight from my life, but certainly experiences I've had, which uh, are reflected in the book. Yeah, I was wondering if Lizzie, because obviously she's a very definite and real person, at least in your mind, as you were, as you were creating her. Yeah. Now, as you talked about your grandmother, I was like, wow, you know, yeah. is there... You know, influence on that because she's obviously very strong and she's the she's the one that holds the family together for you sure know, ultimately is you know with weak parents and her sister and herself it's you know it's, sometimes i like to find out you know from authors how much the story even though it's quote-unquote fictional are actually shades of either a life lived or a dreamed life Yes, absolutely. And in fact, um, I'll talk about it a little bit later. But what I'm working on at the moment is very much, (laughs) it's very much a write what you know, sort of book. And I would say, writers don't necessarily have to write what they know, but 
because I didn't really have, I don't have a degree in history. I loved history growing up. I absolutely love the Regency time period. This book is set in 1813, um, specifically because it's pre-industrial revolution, it's pre-Victorian. And that time period I find very, very intriguing, mainly because we were at the last of the sort of gentry period, the the remainder of when women still had one duty in in the world really and that was to get married and you know further the family line and they they didn't have many other duties beyond that unless they were in servitude so that time period's always really really fascinated me and um although I maybe don't didn't have as much information about it when I started I certainly had a lot <laughs> I did a lot yeah. of research to uh, to make it convincing and make it believable by the time I finished but writing about people and characters if you've I think if you've met enough people, and I certainly find that when I've read science fiction books that I really, really love, or fantasy books that I love, the thing that the backbone of it is the characters more than mm -hmm. any more than For the sure. story a lot of Char the time. Yeah, character driven. Yeah. So um, you know, if you've spent time working with people, speaking to people, meeting people, and you can or you fortunate to have a, an interesting family, then you can always write that into your work, even if they're not, you know, ten foot ogres or uh, earls that or lords that have been married four times before and have <laughs> bad intentions towards right. everyone. <laughs> so, language. So, I'm, I'm not. I'm definitely not familiar with 1813. You know, language, but it was a very definite language that was used. The whole. Um, Whatever that style of English was then is obviously different than what it is now. Yes. But even later, even Victorian. So this is, like you said, pre-Victorian. So how did it go to come up with dialogue, how you came up with knowing what they would say? And I'm assuming it's correct the way that they're talking. I do not know otherwise. But it would seem like if it was incorrect, other people who do know the time period and do know the dialect would probably not hesitate in the least to uh, communicate <laughs> their dismay. Yes, exactly. Um, it comes from reading an awful lot of Jane Austen. She was the author of that time. And I mean, also a little bit later, Charles Dickens. Both of them have a particular style of writing, which actually when you read their letters and correspondence to their own friends and family is much easier to read than what was published in their books. So I was trying to keep it as literary fiction in the correct style without it going over everyone's head, because I don't know about anyone else, but when I was forced to study things like Charles Dickens and Jane Austen at school, I understood very little of it. Right. And it was only as my vocabulary developed and I got a bit older, I, I genuinely enjoy both both of those authors very, very much. I enjoy reading their books, but I wouldn't have understood the nuances and the and the hidden humor behind it all as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I don't want to write a book that alienates readers that would only be interesting to, you know, Austin fans. So I took a slightly more casual approach to the way that they wrote without making it anachronistic, you know, without kind of making it right. overly modern. So it is correct within reason it's it's not written in the way that they would have written it 200 years ago but it's For certainly sure. yeah. written in a correct style so was there actually somebody like lizzie back then that you're able to define or this is you're looking at life right now and, and placing her back there in 1813 i think a little bit of both there are definitely heroines who have been written in that time period. Female authors were less common, obviously, then. But sure. even if you look at the Bronte sisters or you look at Jane Austen and their heroines, a lot of them are very, very strong-minded, and that's the thing that sort of separates them. So that strong-mindedness uh, was is definitely not something that's just in this present day. And in fact, I kind of, I miss the days when we had those fierce heroines and uh, they didn't have to wield a seven foot sword or <laughs> anything yeah. or be a fantastic horse rider to still be a great heroine. Um, so maybe a little bit of modern day personality has gone in there, but I think that she could have very much been a real person. Good. Yeah. I interviewed Elizabeth Wing not that long ago and yeah. uh, she wrote the book Codename Verity, which is 
World War One were the uh, the women pilots in, and so she was she combined a lot of research and she created her her heroines, which are very strong females, not dissimilar to Lizzie. But she said there really were, you know, it, Russia had their their women's air corps, and they actually flew these death traps, you know. But they yeah. were actually they were very active in there. So I was just curious if you had a some type of a of a marker that you were able to use from that time period to to build Lizzie around. But just curious because Elizabeth definitely Elizabeth Wayne definitely uh, has her strong female characters in her codename Verity. Yes. Yeah. It's a, an amazing book, actually. Yeah. It's yeah. Really good. Just celebrated its 20th, whatever anniversary, 25th anniversary just came out. She just, I'm currently emailing her back and forth on some other stuff right now based upon her anniversary. That's and so cool. Her, po- her podcast <laughs> did really, really well. Fantastic. So, yeah. So now maybe you're the exception to the rule, but quite often um, there's a curve on one's journey to becoming a published author. And, and, there comes a time frequently when an author is ready to throw in the towel and something keeps them going and persevering and not giving up. Did you have that type of thing going on? Or you're, you're just one of those um, <laughs> born with a silver typewriter key on your... If only. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, when I, so when I first wrote Divided by Magic, um, and again, as I say, it's a story that I'm still very proud of, even if it's not one that I decided to go down the traditional publishing route with. But I, when I very, very first wrote that first draft, which was pretty awful, I have to say, um, I queried that and, and I had so many rejections. I thought, maybe this is not for me. <laughs> maybe I'm just yeah. not, I'm not built for this, you know. Um, it's very, very different to writing a technical article and getting a, oh, well, this is very interesting or, oh, this is, can you make it more interesting? It was like a resounding no. And yeah. uh, and that was painful. And I thought, wow, I've never, I've never experienced rejection in quite the way you, you get when you put out a piece of your work. It's like a little piece of your soul sure. and you put it out there for all the world to see and then, people say no I don't like it so that went through edits and beta readers and edits and beta readers and more beta reading Hmm. and eventually I went you know what I don't want to query this I want to publish it myself and by the time I self-published the first book um, through Kindle Direct Publishing I already had people asking me for the second book at which point I thought okay it's worth keeping going with this whereas when it came to the House of Lost Wives, I did definitely experience rejection, but the also the sheer quantity of querying that I did, I became very, very organized almost to a military level um, on how I did my querying. I would give them, I'd give each agent a certain amount of time to get back to me. And sometimes even after I was contracted, I'd still get rejection letters from, and rejection's probably the wrong word, but sort of like, oh, actually, we're not interested right now from six months before. And I thought, I can't really operate on that, on that sort of time frame. Um, But I will say to anyone who is looking at querying, it's all looking at going down the traditional publishing route. It it is slow. It's not a fast process and you have to really put your, your best test of patience, (laughs) you know, really put it through its paces and just go, I know it's going to take a long time, but that's okay. I'm willing to experience it. Okay, good. So this now gets us to the area of self slash indie publishing versus the traditional publishing. Mm. So, because I mentioned I'm interviewing Hugh Howie, he's remained, well, he started off self indie publishing and that's how he got, and he just, he took off, went crazy, crazy popular. So there's, and I'm getting more and more successes of authors who've, who have foregone the the traditional publishing line and gone to indie or self using KDP, the Kindlepreneur, or um, those types of, of lines. Kindle is obviously the the most common and popular, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of indie presses too, which are um, very successful. And but the thing that I'm curious about, do you, was any type of a thing that was required? Like, do you have a big social presence or something that would be able to bring to the party besides a good story? Yes, I'm very, very active on the social platforms that I can be active on in my spare time between everything else that I'm doing. And uh, and even that is 
challenging at times. Sure. I, w- I would say if you already have a big social media following, then why not go down the indie publishing route? The beauty of indie publishing is that you do have full control over your manuscript. You don't have to change anything that you don't want to change. You get full control over your cover design, the formatting, everything. And that is both the the greatest benefit and the biggest Achilles heel for an indie publisher is the amount of personal work that you have to put into sure every single book that you put out. And I have friends, I've got a lot of also friends, um, some of whom you've interviewed <laughs> um, <laughs> over the years, but I've got a lot of friends who've gone one way or the other. Sure. Not not so many that have done both at the same time or simultaneously. And, um, and that, I think, in that sense, I'm a little bit unique and a bit different because I'm just using two different names to publish. My, my publisher said, we'd like to, you know, market this as a debut adult novel, which it is because I've never written an adult novel before. And we'd like to do it under a different name. And I thought, well, my maiden name is much easier to pronounce than my married name. So let's go with that. And it sounds very British. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's why we went down that route with, with that one. But the beauty of traditional publishing is that you have a team of people that will work with you and that want your book to succeed. And it's not just you standing up there promoting yourself and kind of, you know, tooting your own horn. You have to still do a lot of that. That's the thing. There's no, it's not like you suddenly get to take time off and not promote yourself. It just means that you've got other people that are also willing to help you do it. And um, that has been very, very valuable for me for the launch of this book. I've, mm-hmm. I've felt like I have a little sort of cheerleading team in the background just going, yeah, we're going to do this. And yeah, we'll send out a, you know, a promotional book to this person and then they'll review it and it'll be great. And I I couldn't have asked for a better group of people really to have brought this book onto the shelves. That's great. Yeah. Another person that um, I've interviewed a couple times before, and he's also one of our judges for writers of the future is Todd McCaffrey. And he's the, the son of Anne McCaffrey and his, Dragon books, and when he writes those, are published traditionally, and then otherwise, the other stuff that he writes um, with Winter Twins and whoever else he does, that's all done indie. So he has both both channels going for him. He has more control, like he said, on his on his uh, indie published works, and he does have you know a bit of a social following along with uh, the Winter Twins, so if they're able to hit out that audience, and they do a lot of uh, shows you know, the conventions and stuff that they attend to, to build up an audience that way. So now on your writing, so you've got, you've gone the traditional route, you, you're going to continue that line. I'm assuming that, I mean, it's a great story and hopefully people listening to this are going to listen to it. The House of Lost Wives. And you can find that obviously on Amazon. Absolutely. It's on Audible for those people that prefer audiobooks and the voice actor Polly Edsel who um who read the book for Audible is phenomenal. She does such an incredible job. She does amazing. I'm not usually that fond of of a female narrator voice cuz when you go to I'm not that much anyway on, on single voice narration anyway, but yeah. on on uh, the female she did a really good job and I was just you know I was able to totally believe her when she was being the, you know, the arrogant husband. <laughs> and it's like, wow, she did yeah, really good. She did great. She even did great with the groundskeeper with his thick Scottish yeah. accent. Oh, I was absolutely. so, I was so impressed. I was really glad I got to choose her. Um, I was given the clip of her reading a particular scene, which had several different characters in it. And I was, for those, the clip must have only been two or three minutes long, but I was completely absorbed. And I thought, wow, did I write this? This is amazing. <laughs> so no, it's I thought, really, well, that's really good. Really good sign. Um, so it is available on Audible, on Kindle. It is at the moment on a Kindle offer of 99p or 99 cents, um, which I think is running for about a month or so. Um, it's paperback in the UK. The paperback hits the US in February because it just takes them a little bit longer to set up the printing houses and 
yeah. there's a paper shortage and all that jazz yeah, I'm at very the moment, familiar with so. that nightmare yes yeah exactly so um we have to be a bit more patient for paperbacks in the u.s but um in the meantime we're looking at translations and other things like that so the house of lost wives still has quite a, a lot of mileage but in the meantime i have got another book in the works um you can pretty much count on me to be writing something at any time. I'm never not in the middle of writing something. Right. <laughs> so, right. so pretty much straight after I finished the house of lost wives, I decided to do a whole bunch of research into another area, same time period. Um, actually one of the characters that appears very, very briefly in the house of lost wives. Um, it's a story about her life and what happens to her. And interestingly enough, when I was speaking to my editor and she was, reading through The House of Lost Wives, and I'd said, by the way, I'm writing another story right now. <laughs> and uh, she, the character that she had said, oh, I wonder if it's about this person. I was like, actually, it is. My guess so, is going to be, so is the girl in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the carriage that she sees when she's... That, <laughs> You've got it. Yeah, okay, good. You got it. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so it's her story. I had so much fun writing that story. And um, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit more swashbuckling. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. But uh, again, where there's a sort of element of mystery, there is a little hint at the paranormal in there, but it's still historical fiction and it's still very much a romance. So it's got all the same ingredients as The House of Lost Wives, but in a different telling um, with a very different main character. So that one is being pitched at the moment. We'll see what happens with it. But currently I'm, I'm hoping that I'm going to just be able to keep churning them out through the traditional routes and and Good. see where it takes me. Good. Is that going to be like an Ender's Game versus Ender's Bean? Um, <laughs> kind Ender, of. En Ender's Shadow, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I like the idea of having multiple stories set within the same universe or social right. circles yeah. without them being sequels so that you could, if you were walking through an airport or something and you picked it up, you wouldn't feel like you were missing any story because you hadn't read another right. one so so that's my concept at the moment is to is to stick with these standalones that have some kind of connection to each other good well that makes sense on that because if they like your writing style then it's going to make them anxious to find what else has she written yeah. and if you build up this uh that that's a point too um because one of the things you mentioned you read a lot of Elron hubbard he um he used 15 different pen names because he wrote so many different types of stories. I just got back from a 10-day uh, Western show in Las Vegas, the Stetson Country Christmas, and it was full of cowboys, cowgirls, ranchers, farmers, you know, and we just did an amazing job just introducing a lot of people to all the Westerns because he wrote over 30 Westerns. Hubbard wrote over 30 Westerns, but we do a lot of, of – um, science fiction shows and a lot of fantasy shows and these different things where we saw a lot of his science fiction, but they're all, a lot of times he uses different pen names on these things here. So is that kind of like how you're fantasying, you're, you know, you know fancying yourself to move forward is to go one way with your historical fiction using this one name and then with your, are you going to ever use your your action, your current name for all the other writings, or what's what's the plan on that? Um, I hope so. I mean, I would, you know, my ultimate dream would be that um, at some point, you know, my publishers or or my agent go, all right, what's next? You know, what else can you write? We know you can do historical fiction. How about something else? And that I could potentially um, revamp the Divided by Magic universe um mm -hmm. there's still plenty of stories in me for that um but also i really am very very happy exploring historical fiction and the kind of the the powerful main characters and and what women could do even though they were limited to quite a small sort of field of or sphere of influence in that time period mm -hmm. um what i'm working on right now is a it, it mixes my two loves together. I've got photography and historical fiction. It's set in 1844, so it's it's right about the time that daguerreotypes, which was the original form of right. photography, uh, were really really popular, and studios were popping up all over the world. And I am I'm just absolutely loving. I loved every minute of research 
for doing that. I'm trying to find myself a daguerreotype studio to go into. There's one in Canada, apparently, so, <laughs> so it might be a field trip for me. Um, but I would, I would love to keep the historical fiction as one pen name. There is an author that I I admire very much, who's Nora Roberts. She churns out a huge yes. amount of work, and she does write under different names for different genres. And she's JD um, Rob as well. Yeah, she's JD yeah. Rob as well. And there's yeah. one other that I can't remember what it is. But yeah, she's um and she's incredibly prolific. And if I could if I could write half as much as her in my lifetime, I'd be very happy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, indeed. But I but I will say that um, you know, I one of my earlier memories, I think my first encounter with Elron Hubbard's fiction was at school, there was one of his mystery thriller books and it was a series of short stories collected into one book and it all and it had all these kind of you know very um 1920s noir style feel to them and I read that and then I spoke to my teacher and I said well this is really really good is there anything else by him and uh and my teacher said oh yes he's written this and pulled out Battlefield Earth which was this giant science fiction book and I was like oh but it's a completely different genre same person, different genre, mm. they can do that sort of thing. So um, that kind of inspired me and made me realize that it's okay to write different things and to be a very versatile author. Mm. You don't have to write one thing. You can write one thing really, really well, or you can write lots of things very, very well. So exactly. that's, that's what I, I hope to live up to that. That's good. The, um, I don't know if you've read the, the book Typewriter in the Sky? Yeah, a long, long time ago. Yeah. I need to read it again. That's when it's, it's historical fiction, but it's the main author there. Is, his name is Horace Hackett. And so the whole thing is a parody on the um, high output pulp fiction writers of the, of the day, where he was, he's got a Steinway piano being played way before Steinway even existed. You know, so he's got all these, these inconsistencies, very blatant, you know, inconsistencies with. Uh, what historical fiction, you know, should be and yeah. how the author will change plot and just be plotting consistencies. And he does it, but it's all based around this historical fiction time period. So that the importance of research then, I guess, especially because of the fact that you're, you're going into an area with this historical fiction. Have you had anybody challenge your research or challenge your anything about your your story that not so much once it's published because my editor both my editor and my copy editor were both very very clever mm -hmm. and there might have been a couple of bits and pieces where there was a particular law at the time actually at the time that this book is set there is a law um in place where you cannot marry your your deceased husband or wife's sibling Right. So, or you you can't marry your siblings, widower, depending on which way around yeah. you look at it. Um, and there were we had to do quite a bit of research because I didn't realize at the time I'd written it. I thought that that law had been abolished by that time um, because I'd read stories of actually one of Jane Austen's relatives because the um, the wife had died and they had six children or something. One of the sisters had ended up marrying the person to look after all the children because they were trying to sort of keep it all in the family. So it didn't even occur to me that that would be against the law. And uh, we had to sort of delve in. <laughs> I was tasked with finding the loopholes to make the rest of the story work, which thankfully I managed to find. If you had enough money and the right person you know, the right connections, you could actually completely get around that. But uh, at one point I thought, wow, that that makes me rethink my entire plot line. So um, thankfully nothing since then. I mean, I have a lot of very, very, very clever readers who have all found it reasonably convincing. So I think I've done okay. Well, it's very convincing. And the main thing about that is money can overcome anything. So Pretty much. And that's what that proved. Even back then, it still is the same premise that if you have enough yeah. money, you know, there's you can you can buy a blind eye all the exactly. way all the way up. Yeah, exactly that. So on on your um, any I guess cautionary tale that you would have on giving to the aspiring writer. Uh, cautionary tales. Let me think. Well, I definitely agree with the uh, hard and fast rule of 
make sure you finish your first draft before you start editing because otherwise you'll dig yourself into a hole. Um, I would say rather than a a cautionary tale, maybe more of a bit of advice. I've found whenever I've gotten stuck and I've written quite a few stories where there have been points that I've gone, I'm just stuck and I've experienced maybe not writer's block so much, but more just like story plot line block. And I think this is not working. And sometimes it requires undoing two or three chapters. Sometimes it requires deleting 10, 20,000 words. And it can be really, really painful. But the amount of times I've dug myself out of a hole that way by going, okay, the reason that I'm actually not progressing with this book right now, and I'm, I'm fairly prolific. I try and write on every commute you know, every every spare moment that I have, I, I try and put in some writing time. So I know that if it's not flowing, it's because there's something wrong with it. And um, a couple of times I've had to delete whole scenes that only exist in my head now. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, there's, um, there's whole chunks of The House of Lost Wives which never occurred in the end because yeah. I had to delete them. But ultimately it made for a better story. And, um, and sometimes you do just have to kind of undo all that hard work and, and say goodbye to it in order to make something that ultimately is even better. So that's not something you just kind of like cut and paste in a, in a different document for... Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe to maybe to be resuscitated at some later volume, or at least the story idea. Maybe I've had whole sections of dialogue which I've I've taken out and stuck in a word document that have honestly never seen the light of day again. Um, yeah. Straight after I finished writing The House of Lost Wives, I wrote the first three chapters of a sequel, which will probably never exist, but they're there. So I know that Lizzie had a story after the end of the book, even if nobody else knows. Yeah. I was, uh, I forget which one. I just finished reading a, a novel and it was a, um, it was, it was fascinating. It was, it was a, a Joe Ledger volume. That was one of the ones that the second book in, in Joe Ledger series by uh, Jonathan Mayberry. Mm-hmm. And, then there came a short story right after that, which kind of like fully finished off that story. There's because it left, a, even though he finished the story, there was a little like, so what about, mm. you know? And so he did a short story that finished it off. It was like, okay, good. Now it's done. But anyway, smart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So now, what's been the most difficult part of your journey as an author? Because you've got, you're a mom, or excuse me, you're a mom. You're, uh, uh, you've got a full-time job with a Nikon studio. You're you're a prolific author of nonfiction. You obviously have to tend to two cats and anything else there. So, um, the cats are the hardest work, honestly. (laughs) All right then. So, um, no, I mean, of all of that, yes, I do definitely have quite a lot going on and I, I certainly try and utilize every minute of every day so that I'm not I've never been much of a slacker, I have to say. Uh, My parents instilled this incredibly intense, strong work ethic in me since I was very, very small. So if I wasn't writing stories, I was writing songs or I was painting or, you know, I was always trying to create something. And, um, And I'm very fortunate. I have a very, have an exceedingly understanding family who don't mind me sort of hermiting off for a while and <laughs> writing <laughs> books. Um, my my first book that I wrote, I wrote on my phone whilst I was doing a daily commute on the London Underground. And I wrote 80,000 words on my phone like wow. this, which was ridiculous. I mean, you know, you'd be crammed under someone's sweaty armpit for... 25 minutes there and back and I and sometimes longer because you'd be stuck at a red signal or something but I really thought no I just need to put the story out there and then obviously when I came to editing it I did it on a computer where I could actually see what I was doing but um I think my my need to write was stronger than the external factors that were trying to stop me from writing um so that that certainly has been helpful. But sometimes it does get very, very intense. And sometimes mm. I have to say, okay, I'm going to need to put a pause on this. And I try and work on sort of short-term goals so so that I can give myself a little celebration every so often and go, okay, I achieved that. That's great. Um, so, for example, in my work in progress at the moment, I decided it was going to be, you know, 
100,000 words in the first draft. And at 55,000 words, that's the end of part one. And I've been quite disciplined about that. And I actually, I then give it to four people once I've written some chapters. And they also did this for me with The House of Lost Wives. Um, First two are my mum and my dad. My dad is my biggest fan. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, he's read every single draft. I know he's great. He's read every single draft of The House of Lost Wives, um, every iteration of it. Um, A writer friend of mine called Gillian Greenwood, who she also writes nonfiction and articles for for Nick on owner, but she's also writing her own series at the moment. And in some ways it's kind of like a little encouragement as well, just to say, keep going. See, I wrote Mm -hmm. these chapters. You can do it too, sort of thing. Um, And then another writer friend of mine uh, called Tatis Gabalondo, she writes sort of more young adult teen fiction, uh, usually based around human rights. And she has been a Wattpad author and she's, because I send her very, very long voice notes about all my stories, <laughs> she she usually knows what's going to happen before I send her chapters. But for me, it's kind of a discipline. It's like, okay, I've I've written this. I'm not going to edit it anymore. I'm not going to touch it anymore. It's as good as it's going to get. I'm going to send you the first half of the book. And then I can't go back and change it anymore. Right. And then I write the next lot. So it gives me a little win every time I get to send send off a chapter or a set of chapters to them because I know, although I might tweak a couple of bits later on, the first draft of the story is in their hands. I get it. So is your writing time your 25-minute each way commute to work? My, my commute's longer now, so it's really helpful. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> my commute is now about 40 minutes, and uh, I can usually sit down. So I take my laptop with me everywhere, and uh, I, I really do use my train journeys. I don't usually do anything else except write um, there, I also try and carve out a little bit of the weekend. If it's just an hour on a Sunday morning after chores or something, then I will try and do writing. But commuting is has really saved my writing career, I think. <laughs> wow. When do you, I mean, I mean, your odd editing and all that stuff there, it would seem like all that, all those smelly armpits would be a distraction to <laughs> any final tweaks and edits of, of sentences and paragraphs to make sure they're all flowing yeah, it's a little so, bit so more. So they smell good now. when you read them. <laughs> so they smell good, exactly. <laughs> it's a little bit more civilized now because I'm outside of London. I'm on. I get to take a mainline train, which means it's all above ground. When I look out the window, it's fields and cows okay. and sheep, and it's all very yeah. idyllic and lovely. So it's it's much nicer. It's still crowded. Sometimes I will have someone that's very busy, like you know, pulling out the contents of their handbag while I'm trying to type on my laptop yeah. and keep myself to myself. But um, but initially it was very much, I felt like I was really working hard for my word count. And um, and now I managed to cram in a little bit of writing every morning, every evening. So it means I'm basically having a mini writing session twice a day. Uh, when, when it comes to the edits and the things that the publisher wants me to edit, those I do at home uh, in a, in a okay. closed office, you know, ambient music on or playlist. I usually have a playlist for every book that I write. So... The House of Lost Wives had had a, a lot of Einaudi. <laughs> it was a lot of piano music. Um, understandably, Lizzie is a pianist, so yeah. I, I needed the sort of emotional piano in there um, when I was writing a, a much more sort of set at sea book. A little bit later, I was listening to epic sea shanties and stuff. So <laughs> I have music that, that suits my mood for my writing. And yeah, for the editing process, I definitely do that at home in a bit more of a controlled environment. I get it. Yeah, because I I can understand, like, because I've done the train ride to Sussex from England once, and that's that's the idyllic. That's where you got the open pastures, and then a lot on the on the tubes inside London, traveling around all different places when I was there on a publishing trip, going to conventions and events and bookstores and booksellers. It was, um, and I was there, I was taking the underground, and there was definitely crammed. Yeah. It's not yeah. very conducive to sitting down with a laptop at all. So no, no. I guess that's your phone. That's your phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> huh. So, what's been the most rewarding aspect to your career? I think, um, gosh, <laughs> when I started this adventure, mm-hmm. the the main thing I wanted was to write stories that people would read, 
And it was as simple a purpose as that. There was nothing beyond that. I just wanted to be able to write books that people would read. And I think the fact that I've had such incredible feedback on this book and I've had so many people say, you know, I really loved it or it was my favorite read of the year or, um, you know, I can't wait to see what you come up with next. Those little validations as I go along the way make me think, well, this was definitely worth it. Even if I just wrote one book and that was it and I got those those sort of tokens of appreciation from people. But um, one of the really nice things was I, I did a mini sort of signing event in a local bookshop and the bookshop is called The Bookshop. It's in a little town called East Grinstead, uh, on the Tudor High Street. So it's a very oldie worldy. I mean, you walk yeah. into the, the bookshop and, you know, half the shelves are leaning over and stuff. And it's run by this absolutely wonderful uh, bookshop owner called John Pye, who is such a lovely human being. He's mm-hmm. very, very encouraging. And he said, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to put a table outside and you're going to sell books to people as they walk past. And I thought, well, I don't really have a problem with selling things to people because I've sold cameras for the last 15 years. So don't that you know that's but this is a bit different because this is selling my book this is not selling something that people are going oh I'd like to buy a new camera <laughs> so, yeah um and and the amazing thing was that I was supposed to be there from about 11 o'clock until 4 p.m and we completely sold every single last copy and including my backup copies by three and um and I was so overwhelmed with the number of people that turned up, people that just stopped in the street and came and bought a book because I'd written it and they wanted it signed and and stuff like that, that I thought, wow, <laughs> I'm happy. If that's the end of it, I'm I'm happy. So so that was probably one of my my greatest pleasure moments of the whole that's thing. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a great story right there. And just that type of of a recognition as an artist you know, for, yeah. for your, for your work. Cause like you say, you, you're burying your soul to a greater or lesser degree when you write something and for someone to say, this is great or this sucks, you know, yeah. and you've got to be willing for either one. And unfortunately in today's society, there's more people, especially on social will feel um, empowered to, to be the uh, self-assigned critic with absolutely no experience, but they'll just exactly. they'll do that. So, um, one last question, and we're almost out of time here. Um, do you, you, you mentioned earlier that you've got yourself a, a circle of, of close friends of, of, of good people. Have you, has that been a conscious effort to do that, to keep yourself clear of, of the uh, naysayers and the, and the, um, downer type the, the soul suckers Folks. <laughs> yeah <laughs> the soul suckers the um you, you know it really it really is I I've kind of found that whenever I feel not so great about myself or uh I think maybe you know writing isn't for me or whatever I'm doing is not for me photography is not for me or or whatever um that as long as I have a group of people around me they don't necessarily need to say oh no just keep going you're doing great and give me a pat on the back it's not even about that it's actually just that kind of positive mindset and knowing that if I'm in a bit of a rut I'm not going to have someone that's trying to make the situation worse and that I'm going to have people that are actually making the situation better. I was very, very fortunate to have, you know, an amazing grandmother who thought everything that I produced was fantastic. So that was great ego boosting for a, for a child. Um, and my parents were the same, you know, even if I drew the, the most rubbish picture with finger paints and it was a mess, they were like, wow, this is fantastic. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And sometimes I, I hear people say, oh, well, you can't give children a false impression of, you know, they've got to be ready to to experience life and tough love and blah, blah, blah. And I think, well, actually, no. You know, the, the, the reason that I have been so fortunate to just continue creating constantly is because even when I was producing rubbish, I was still being told I could I could produce something amazing. And I kind of kept that with that's me and good. kept going. I don't I think, think that's that very you can impo- ever yeah. give a child too much, yeah too much level of validation is not is not a thing so just you know good. more encouragement oh good that's awesome so now how can someone find you online so i'm on socials 
Uh, on Facebook, I have a page which is Rebecca Denazy, which might be confusing to people, but that is my <laughs> that is my married name and that is my name. Uh, I'm on Instagram as Rebecca underscore reads books, as you mentioned. And my website is RebeccaDenazy.com, but you can also, if you Google Rebecca Hardy, I do also come up. So does the pro wrestler. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but if you put author, it usually finds me. Yeah. Um, the House of Lost Wives is available on all good publishing platforms, whether it be Amazon. Over here, we have uh, Waterstones and WH Smith and mm-hmm. and all those other places. So, so the book is is pretty much everywhere you can buy books, as well as on Amazon. As well as on Amazon. That's great. Well, thank you very much, Becky. It's been really a lot of fun. Which I knew it would be once I finally finished the book and how you handled the ending. I said, okay, good. I'm all for this now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for yes. reading it as well. Yes. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We have also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by L. Ron Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Becky. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.